Our Father, we do confess that we need you. We who have come to taste of your grace realize that we stand moment by moment in that grace. That our ability to fight and put to death sin is because of Christ in us and a superior love for you. Because of the ongoing convicting ministry, Holy Spirit, of you inside those you indwell. That our desire to live in light of the future, to contemplate all that is ours in Christ and to long for it such that we say as John did, come Lord Jesus come and oh how we want you to come because we want to be with you. We want to see your glory in a way that we can never see it here. We want to worship you in a way with a purity and intensity that we could never give to you here. We want to be with you forever and know that sin is no longer a threat and our love for you will never know any abating but only an increase throughout all the endless ages. So impress those truths upon us and help us to celebrate that work in the life of Michelle and Ed this morning in the waters of baptism. We pray this in the matchless name of him who made it all possible, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, this morning we are uh, taking a bit of a break uh, and going to celebrate uh, baptism. Baptism is always, of course, a highlight in any church service. It should be. It especially is in ours, as we'll hear the testimony of uh, Ed and uh, Michelle Vargas in just a few moments. So, but before we do, I want to take some time briefly, as we often do, to think about uh, what baptism is. And, and so it's, it's always a good time to focus on an aspect of what's being celebrated or what's being pictured or what's being proclaimed in the waters of baptism, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in him. That's what baptism is, essentially a proclamation of the gospel and participation in all of who God is and what Christ has done. And so there's a variety of things, obviously, that you can talk about. All of Scripture is about the gospel. We could look at it from God's side and to think of the person of Christ and the work of Christ and the resurrection, ascension, the ongoing ministry of Christ and those type of things. And there's a variety of parts of that. We look at it sometimes from man's side and we look at faith and repentance and sanctification and what all that means to be in Christ. Uh, This morning, I want to particularly consider one aspect of the atonement of Christ, and that is this, salvation from the wrath to come. Salvation from the wrath to come. Christ on the cross endured God's wrath for our sin. Christ endured God's wrath for our sin. He stood in our place to reconcile us to God, and that's what I want to consider this morning. The big theological word for that, and it's not just a theological word, it's a biblical word, is propitiation. That's not a word that you probably used in conversation last week, but it is a word that's used in Scripture. Christ is the propitiation for our sins, he says in Romans chapter 3. Christ is the propitiation for our sins, he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Christ is the propitiation for our sins, he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It is a word that is not familiar to us, but it is one that we need to understand to understand the work of Christ. And the core idea is this, that Jesus Christ in his death satisfied God's holy and just wrath for sin. In doing so, he removed our condemnation and he provided a covering for our sins that is the grounds of God's ability to extend his favor to us, to man. That's the idea behind propitiation. 
The coming of the wrath of God is not a reality that's often talked about, but it's essential to understanding the work of Christ on the cross. It's what gives it teeth. It's what gives its weight. It's not merely an example to be nice people and to be sacrificial. It actually accomplished something. It accomplished something objective. It accomplished a real salvation, not just to produce a subjective feeling inside of us, but an objective reality. It atoned for the sin of our guilt. It atoned for our guilt. He atoned for the condemnation that we deserve. He bore God's wrath in our place. But that, again, is not something that's often talked about, but we must understand it. It provides the answer to the question, saved from what? Saved from what? Are we saved from bad feelings? Are we saved from a meaningless life? Are we saved from discouragement and depression? Are we saved from bad relationships, a bad marriage, a bad family life? What are we saved from? Well, fill in the blank of the answer to that, and that would be very often sometimes what you hear. But what are we saved from? We are saved from, again, God's wrath and holy hatred of sin. So what is wrath or what wrath is? This is the first point. And I'm just going to, we have an abbreviated time. We're going to look at this just under five Five, uh, five headings. And the first is this. What wrath is? What wrath is? Well, I've already alluded to this, but wrath is the righteous response of a holy God to sin. That would capture everything. There's a variety of terms and ways that it's talked about in Scripture. But at the core, what is the wrath of God? It is the holy response of God to sin. To sin. That is the wrath of God. It is the necessary and inevitable consequence of sin entering into God's world, corrupting his image bearers. There is no other response that we could expect from a holy God other than that his wrath would abide on those who are in rebellion to him. A couple of ways that this has been described I think is helpful is this. One, I think uh, this will go up there, is wrath is not an attribute of God, but it is a name for the divine response to sin. Another puts it this way. Wrath is integral to the biblical proclamation of the living God in his opposition to sin. Whereas God's love is spontaneous to his own being, his wrath is a willed response to creatures' wickedness. It is the settled opposition of his holiness to evil. In other words, there was no wrath in God before sin entered into the world. Wrath is the necessary consequence of a holy God to sin. When God acts in love, he's acting out of what is essential to his being, namely that he acts spontaneously in love because uh, he is a God of love. But when he acts in wrath, he acts, yes, out of the nature of his being as holy, but it is because of a specific consequence of sin. It is a specific consequence of sin. Now, God's wrath, then, is not mechanical or detached. It's not an impersonal expression. In other words, when we think of God's wrath as a response to sin, it's not like a mathematical equation where 2 plus 2 equals 4. God is a personal God. God created us for personal relationship. God invests himself in us to us in the most intimate of ways. Sin is a rebellion, a personal rebellion against God. And God's response to that is a personal response of a holy being to that sin. It's a personal response of a holy God to the rebellion of those creatures who bear his image and are required to reflect that image. 
Now, there are some both inside and outside of the church that object to the idea of God's wrath or to the idea of Christ bearing God's wrath in our place. Some, if you're liberal theologians, will call that divine child abuse. There's nothing more offensive than to say that Christ bore an actual wrath on the cross of God. And the reason, the core of this rejection, is because there is a blindness in the heart, a veil that lies over the eyes to some degree, to capture the piercing holiness of God and what sin really is. We have a diminished view of God, and if we have a small view of God, we have a small view of sin. But when we understand the holiness of God and all of his majesty, the holiness that caused angels to veil their face, the holiness that caused the righteous prophet Isaiah to say, woe to me, damn me, curse me, I'm a man of unclean lips. When we understand that, and then we understand how devastating sin actually is, we can understand wrath against it. It's the piercing majesty of God's holiness, the infinite purity and glory of his being, which leads to a right view of sin and an understanding of wrath. But some say, no, this makes God petty. It makes him no more glorious and no more holy than the vindictive pagan deities of Greek culture and outside of that. Matter of fact, one has said this, those who object to the conception of the wrath of God, then should realize this. What is meant is not some irrational passion bursting forth uncontrollably, but a burning zeal for the right, coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. In other words, the wrath of God stands in stark contrast to the kind of petty vindictiveness that we see in pagan deities where you did me wrong, I'm going to get you back. It is the necessary response of a being who is absolutely pure and who is absolutely holy, who is absolutely glorious, and who is the creator of all things. It's not vindictiveness, one, but it is the righteous response of holiness. And number two, what stands apart in God's wrath is this, that it is in unity with his love. Because ultimately, the wrath of God, the holy response of God to sin was born by God himself to demonstrate what is of the essence of his nature, which is love. So that's first. That's what wrath is. Secondly, wrath then is the reality that hangs over the world of unbelief. Wrath is the reality that hangs over the world of unbelief. Now, We're not going to give a lot of discussion on these. I'm just going to read to you several parts of this just so you get a feel for the way that Scripture talks about this, and particularly in the New Testament. Wrath is what hangs over a world under sin that rejects God's testimony to Christ. Listen, you're familiar with this. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness who hold it down because of a love for sin, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. John 3.36, from the mouth of Jesus, he said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey or believe in the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now that comes in the same chapter in the context that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You don't see the other part written on the placard at sporting events. But that's the context. And if you do not believe, and if this belief is not shown in a righteous life that's been transformed by the Spirit of God, then the wrath of God abides on you. Those are from Jesus. 
he says to Christians, Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that we are those who wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from what? The wrath to come. Now, men do not perceive this wrath because it's temporarily stayed, most often by the kindness of God, a kindness of God that is meant to lead us to repentance. But in this sense, in the context of the wrath of God, it actually is a double-edged sword, his kindness. Listen to this. Or do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience, of his kindness and tolerance and patience? This is Romans 2, 4. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. That is in the context of God giving men and a culture over to their sin as an act of judgment. And so while there seems to be a freedom to sin, that's how man defines freedom. I get to do whatever I want. I get to sin without consequence. God defines that as enslavement and actually as storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And so that time that should be used for repentance is, in fact, used for accruing judgment. Wrath is the final destination, then, or wrath is the consequence, then, of sin. Let me just read to you a couple of verses. And I'm going to read them. We're not going to turn to them just for time's sake. Colossians 3, 5. He says, therefore, he's writing to Christians, he says, but therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And I would just comment that that is the very things that are promoted and loved in our culture. But then he says this, for it is because of these things, because of immorality, impurity, greed, and idolatry, passion, evil desire, it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Writing to the Ephesians, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, a similar list, these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It is the final destination of those outside of Christ. He said earlier in Ephesians 2, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by what? We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. One more. Romans 9. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath who are prepared for destruction? In other words, the condition of man, which we can so easily forget, is that we are in rebellion to a holy God, and God's holy response to that rebellion is wrath. He stays it, he shows kindness, he shows his goodness and common grace to those who are his enemies even, causing the sun to rise, causing rain to fall, causing the opportunity to enjoy aspects of his creation. But let that not be a deceiving reality that his wrath is against sin. Now, there's two manifestations of this wrath. There's temporal and eternal. In other words, there are manifestations of this wrath in this world as it is, and there is a manifestation of this wrath that is eternal. Again, just listen. I'll give representative passages. There's the wrath of God against nations that's coming out. Psalm 79, 6. Pour out your wrath 
upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. He's anticipating that day. There is the wrath of God temporally, even against Israel, the covenant nation of God because of her idolatry. And such was his anger that burned against them for their sin and their rejection of the covenant and covenant faithfulness that he ultimately destroyed that nation at one part in their history and sent them into exile. Second Chronicles 34, 25 says this, because they, this is God speaking, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands, therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place and it shall not be quenched. That wrath was the seas of Jerusalem that led to the most horrific Starvation and suffering that led ultimately to the destruction of Solomon's temple and the exile, the remaining exile of those who were in the southern tribe of Judea off to the kingdom of Babylon, separated from their land. The wrath of God is against all men, as I mentioned earlier, in giving them over to sin. Let me go back to that point. Romans 1, the wrath of God is over all men. How? Verse 24, he gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurities so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That's an expression of his wrath. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. So verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So we have a culture that exalts in those things as an expression of freedom. I get to have sex any way that I want, with anyone I want, anytime I want, and that's my freedom. God says, no, that's your slavery and it's your judgment. And so we need to understand that The freedom that we see, it seems like, is actually a judgment of God. It's a judgment of God. There is a temporal wrath, temporal wrath that is coming. There is finally the wrath of God that's coming to be expressed at the end of this age. It is the wrath of revelation, what we would say is the wrath of the tribulation, seven years of unique punishment that God will pour out on an unbelieving world. Let me give you one. At the beginning of this wrath, it says this in verse 15 of chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Then there's 13 chapters of the wrath of God on fallen men and on a world that stands in rebellion to him because they chose pleasure rather than God. Beloved, this is our worldview. We don't understand the gospel if we don't understand this reality. Either that is true or it's not true. Either wrath does abide on men or it does not. But we who believe scripture know that it is true. It is true. So there's a temporal wrath, but that's not it. There is an eternal wrath. Upon his return, Jesus declared the eternal destination of two spiritual groups of humanity. And there's no middle ground, right? So if you're in this room, you either belong to Christ, 
your sins are covered and you have a hope in him, or you do not belong to Christ and you bear the weight of your guilt and wrath is your only expectation remaining in that state. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. And so he says this, uh, Jesus does, these will go away upon his return, these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Again, Paul warns the same in an encouragement to the Thessalonians. He says that when he returns, Christ, he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Jesus describes this future condition of those outside of him in these words. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. What is hell? It is where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That was Jesus. Hell is a a reality. And he was not ashamed to point that out as a motivation to consider repentance. Repentance. To consider one's condition. In a famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, some of you all have read it, uh, Jonathan Edwards helpfully describes this aspect of hell in this way. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you, speaking of those who are there, must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you which will swallow up all of your thoughts and amaze your soul. And you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. And that is, really when we think of this eternal reality of God's wrath, the the most striking point. It's not wrath for a year, it's not wrath for... A million years, it's not wrath for a billion years. It is wrath that has no end. It is eternal. It is an eternal wrath. So that after endless ages of time, those who are there will only look forward and see another endless ages, followed by another endless ages, followed by another endless ages. This is what Jesus was warning about. This is what he says when he says the wrath of God abides on those who do not obey him. And when we are saved, when somebody comes to faith in Christ, while there are many aspects of salvation, this is only one of them, but since not less than this, we are saved from the wrath to come. Listen to this in the glorious context of salvation. uh, Paul says this in Romans, and just listen. Again, I'm giving little explanation. I just want you to, to listen. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Let me back up to verse 6. For while we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We have been spared of the coming wrath of God, we who have trusted in Christ. So this is another question then. How is the sinner who bears the weight of his or her sin to be saved from this wrath, and how does Christ accomplish this? 
Number three, wrath is what Christ satisfied on the cross in his atonement. This is the doctrine of a propitiation. It is an aspect of the atonement of Christ. His pain, the price of our sin, the price for our redemption. It is what Christ satisfied, this wrath, on behalf of believers. Now, let me just remind you of a passage here in Romans chapter 3. And again, just going to mention this. He says this, that Christ is whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Simplified is this. God held up his faithfulness and the fulfillment of his works that were anticipated in the law and the prophets that were revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, ultimately when he gave himself up to be put on a Roman cross to there pay an atonement for sin in his suffering and his death. And he did it for the whole world to see. He didn't do it in a corner. He did it publicly so that he could say, this is my son, this is the one I gave up, this is the satisfaction of my justice, and this only is the satisfaction of my justice. One has described that in this way, as Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone, God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up from the beginning of the world. When he says that he had passed over sins previously committed, the the charge could be laid against and say, what about all of these sins that your people have committed against you? Is a bull, as a goat, going to take away that sin and satisfy the righteousness of a holy God? Where did those sins just willy-nilly forgiven? And the answer here is no, is saying that every sin that was ever committed by God's people that would be forgiven was for millennia before Christ came, stored up within the heart of God, and then it was laid out on Christ when he was on the cross, both those sins that had been previously committed and those sins that would be committed in the future. All of it was stored up in the omniscient, infinite, holy knowledge and wisdom of God and laid out on Christ. He was the propitiation for our sins. And it was a profound experience what Christ endured on the cross that we cannot understand. And we cannot understand it, one, because we are not the holy, sinless Son of God who never knew sin. We can't even fathom that contrast of never knowing sin and then bearing all of the sin of the people whom he came to redeem. And we've never experienced the full measure of God's holy hatred of sin, and yet when God poured out his wrath on Christ on the cross, he held nothing back. He had no compassion. He had no pity. It says in Isaiah 53, he was pleased to crush him. He did not in any way mitigate, soften, lessen the wrath and the hatred that he had for the sin as his holy reaction to the disobedience and rebellion of his people. So Christ endured it, one, as the holy and sinless Son of God, and two, in the fullest measure. What did he experience? Well, I thought this was helpful. This is an extended quote. I don't usually, as you know, give a quote this long, but but I thought this was worth it. And so this is an extended uh, meditation almost on what it was that Christ would have experienced in our place. Uh, This is from theologian Wayne Grudem. 
He says this, our human experience provides a very faint analogy that helps us understand what it means to bear the wrath of God. Perhaps as children, we have faced the wrath of a human father when we have done wrong. Or perhaps as adults, we have known the anger of an employer because of a mistake that we have made. We're inwardly shaken, disturbed by the crashing of another personality, filled with displeasure, not our very selves, and we tremble. We can hardly imagine the personal disintegration that would threaten if the outpouring of wrath came not from finite human being, but from Almighty God. If even the presence of God, when he does not manifest wrath, arouses fear and trembling, how terrible it must be to face the presence of a wrathful God. With this in mind, we are now better able to understand Jesus' cry of desolation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' cry is a quotation from Psalm 22.1. In quoting this psalm, he is quoting a cry of desolation that also has implicit in its context an unremitting faith in the God who will ultimately deliver him. Nevertheless, it remains a very real cry of anguish because the suffering has gone on for so long and there is no relief in sight. With this context for the quotation, it is better to understand the question, why have you forsaken me? as meaning, why have you left me for so long? Jesus, in his human nature, knew he would have to bear our sins to suffer and die. But in his human consciousness, he probably did not know how long the suffering would take. Yet to bear the guilt of millions of sins, even for a moment, would cause the greatest anguish of soul. To face the deep and furious wrath of infinite God, even for an instant, would cause the most profound fear. But Jesus' suffering was not even a minute or two or ten. When would it end? Could there be yet more weight of sin, yet more wrath of God? Hour after hour it went on. The dark weight of sin and the deep wrath of God poured over Jesus in wave after wave. Jesus at last cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why must this suffering go on so long? O God, my God, will you ever bring it to an end? This is the suffering that Jesus endured in his atonement on the cross for our sin who knew him. This is the cup that he anticipated in the garden when he prayed to the Father and was sweating drops of blood. And he says, Father, if there is a way, if this cup could pass from me. But there was no way this cup could pass from him. And he accepted willingly and voluntarily his life as a sacrifice for sin. There was no other way, so he willingly drank the cup of suffering down to the dregs for us. And this was purposely planned by the Father, willingly endured by the Son, to satisfy God's righteousness for the unrighteous and guilty. This author goes on to say this. Then at last... Jesus knew his suffering was near completion. He knew he had consciously borne all the wrath of the Father against our sins, for God's anger had abated and the awful heaviness of sin was being removed. He knew that all that remained was to yield up his spirit to his heavenly Father and die. And with a shout of victory, Jesus cried out, It is finished. Then... With a loud voice, he once more cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he voluntarily gave up the life that no one could take from him, and he died. 
As Isaiah predicted, he poured out his soul to death and he bore the sins of many. And God the Father saw the fruit of the travail of his soul and was satisfied. That is propitiation. That is propitiation. It is what was pictured and anticipated thousands of times in the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament in the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. But not one drop of blood from an animal actually satisfied the wrath of God. That was the point. If there was, the writer of Hebrews said, then there would be no need for the sacrifice of Christ. But in that, there was a reminder of sins year by year, anticipating the one who would finally satisfy God's holy wrath against sin. Every drop of blood anticipated the sacrifice of the Son of God, which did satisfy God's righteousness, did satisfy his holy justice forever. One said this, love of God for sinners meets his wrath at Calvary, and nowhere else is fully explained Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is what believers are rescued from through faith. This is what Christ atoned for on the cross so that we could be rescued. Again, Romans 3 says this, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And when a heart is made alive to Christ, when a heart is born again, when someone goes from spiritual death to spiritual life, from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight, from spiritual darkness into the light of God, they see this. Everybody here who knows Christ came to a point where you understood your sin before a holy God. You understood it. All of a sudden, sin went from, I know I'm a sinner, to I know I'm a sinner. I feel the burden of that sin in my soul. I know that I deserve condemnation. I need to be rescued, and I will do anything to be rescued. I will do anything to be reconciled to this God whom I long for. The regenerate heart is made to understand the righteousness of God, the rightness of his holy wrath, and the satisfaction of that wrath in and only in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is the wakened heart that runs to confess personal sin and guilt and to cry out to God forgiveness, who sees Christ as the one who stood in his place and who trusts him to be rescued and for reconciliation. It is the heart that says in Acts 16 that cries out with them and says, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe and turn to him and you shall be saved. Number four, God's wrath averted. God's love is now the defining reality then for believers, those who are in Christ, who are no longer, as Paul described in Ephesians chapter two, children of wrath, by nature children of wrath, but are instead children of God. And again, this is the idea behind propitiation. It's a sacrifice, I quote, that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. To be saved then is to no longer to be under the wrath of God, but to stand firmly in the love of God. To stand in his love, his eternal love as a father, his eternal love as a gracious God who mirrored in his words in Ezekiel 18, does not take delight in the death of the wicked, 
Much rather that you would turn and repent and be saved. That's what God truly delights in. But it is an expression of his love. He says in 1 John 4.10, I mentioned it earlier, let me read it again, and this is love. Not that we loved God. In other words, there was nothing within our fallen, depraved, darkened, rebellious, dead nature that welled up in some measure a love for God. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is love. God's holiness demands justice and satisfaction for holy wrath, and God's love provided the sacrifice to meet those demands in himself at his own cost. And it's understanding this that brings the reality of the necessity of Christ's atonement into focus. Christ is the only way. Why? Why isn't Buddha the way? Why isn't spiritual enlightenment the way? Why isn't some other kind of spiritual quest the way? Because it does not provide an atonement for sin. That's why. It might make you feel better. It might make someone get in touch with themselves. It might connect them culturally to all kinds of religious ideas. But at the end of the day, you stand before God and there is a burden of everyone who bears his image in which you have to deal with the burden and the guilt of sin. And it doesn't matter, of course, whether we feel guilty. Guilt is an objective reality of having offended the holiness of God. Period. And the question is that when standing before this holy God who is infinite in his majesty, infinite in his glory, infinite and perfect in the purity of his eyes and his holy nature, is to say, what are you going to do about your sin? Are you going to go to church more? Are you going to read your Bible more? Are you going to help little more little old ladies across the street? Are you going to do good? Empty. There's only one way for a sinner to be freed from the wrath of God, and that is what Christ bore on the cross. There's only one way to fulfill the righteous requirement of what God requires, and that is what Christ did in his incarnation, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. This is why Jesus would say, I am the way, I am the truth. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And if you want, if anybody is here who wants to think you're going to get there some other way and that the cross is simply a nice idea, it's what those religious Christians do, then understand this in the hearing of the word of God today. You will account for your sin. But you don't need to because Christ has already paid that for those who will trust him for those who will turn to him, for those who will acknowledge sin and acknowledge his glory in the cross. And it's understanding this that keeps God's wrath, it's understanding his holy hatred of sin that keeps the gospel from being merely sentimental, from being man-focused, from being superficial, from being empty, from being about God helping you with your felt needs and to making you a more content person. It's bogus. God came to rescue sinners from his divine wrath, to reconcile them to God, to make enemies into friends, to make those who abide in death share in his life in Christ. This is what baptism pictures. This is what baptism pictures, this changed relationship of God 
who has now reconciled himself to believers. He provided the means of that reconciliation. And for those who are outside of Christ, who are with us this morning, who this is a nice idea, but you have not trusted in Christ yet, then I would suggest these words to you. They are not my own. They are the words, again, from Jonathan Edwards, who's gone many years before. He said this, after describing the predicament in a very powerful way of those who are outside of Christ, he then at the end gives the most gracious plea, and and it ends with this. He says, their case is past all hope. He's talking about those who are in hell. Those who are in hell, that's there here. Their case is past all hope. They are crying in extreme misery and perfect despair, but here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God and have an opportunity for salvation. What would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day such opportunity as you now enjoy? What would those who are in hell and under judgment at this very moment not give to sit where you are to have one more opportunity, to have one more opportunity to trust in Christ? Therefore, he says, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives and look not behind you. Escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. This is not my voice that you hear this morning, if that is you. It is the voice of Christ through his word that you hear. It is Christ warning from heaven in the language of Hebrews, saying today is the day of salvation. Do not refuse him when you hear him. Now, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, baptism is then a picture of this grace that we have been moved from enemies to be sons and daughters. We have been moved from wrath to a place of inestimable grace, forgiveness, hope, delight, and joy in Christ. And so those who give testimony this morning are giving testimony to that abundant grace of God. They are saying, yes, I've seen this. I have acknowledged my sin. Yes, I have seen the wrath that I deserve, but I have seen the one also who has taken that wrath in my place. I have seen the one who stood in place for me. I have seen the one who is my righteousness. I have seen the one in whom there is hope. And I have put all of my trust in him. I have identified with him completely. I have put all of my hope in him. He defines reality for me. He defines my hope. He is my joy. He is a definition of my hate. He is the one who guides and directs my life. He is the one that I look to. He is the one I bow my knee to in the privacy of my own heart. And I long for and I cry out to him. That is what they're testifying to. And that's what we celebrate and what we rejoice in this morning. So let me pray. And then John will lead us up in the song and then we'll get ready to hear these testimonies. Father, thank you for the magnificent grace that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the infinite, glorious display of your holy love that we who should die and be condemned have set before us Christ publicly displayed as a propitiation for our sins in his blood. We see hope, forgiveness, light and truth, joy and peace 
an eternal inheritance, unfading, imperishable, and undefiled. Show us the glory of Christ. Help us to live for him, to love him, to honor him, to serve him. And for those who may not know you, open their eyes to see the glory that we see. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.